Hey folks, welcome to a brand new episode of Thanks for the Knowledge, the Fanbyte Weekly News Show rounding up the headlines and games and entertainment in one handy podcast. I'm your host, head of Fanbyte Media, John Warren. Uh, we have a really cool show for you this week. Our, our own news correspondent, Kenneth Shepard, sat down with uh, narrative lead and co-writer of The Last of Us Part Two, Hallie Gross, for a really, really, really remarkable interview about her process, about venturing into games after working in TV, and a bunch of other stuff. You will not want to miss that conversation. It is super, super good. Uh, But first, we have to get to the top stories of the week. On the evening of August 4th, Open Roads, the new game from uh, Gone Home and Tacoma developer Fulbright Company, posted a tweet on their account saying, quote, We are a small team passionate about making an inclusive, poignant, story-driven game that gives players the, a feeling of discovery. We care deeply about creating games that have a positive impact. We are also fervent believers in fostering a work environment that is healthy and collaborative, where we can work with transparency, autonomy, and trust. As such, Fulbright's co-founder, Steve Gaynor, has stepped back from his role as creative lead and manager and transitioned to a role as a writer, handing off data day responsibilities to the team to complete open roads we're all excited by how the game is shaping up and we hope you'll follow along as we continue to share our progress uh, moments later uh in quote by the way uh moments later polygon uh, broke a story about how steve Gaynor's uh, uh controlling and demeaning management style has driven many people out of the company over the past couple of years and uh there were no allegations of any sort about sexual harassment or misconduct to be clear but the uh, the the pattern of behavior was mostly Steve Gaynor talking down to women on his staff. As such, uh, he's stepping back into a writer's role, which is interesting because uh, with this such public uh, declaration that Steve Gaynor's management style is totally unacceptable to remain at the head of a company, it's kind of strange that he would actually remain at the company. But still, he's a writer. Annapurna is handling the publishing of uh, Open Roads and is, in fact, uh, being the mediary between Steve Gaynor and the rest of the Open Roads team. So it is not exactly a collaborative environment anymore. Uh, the the full story over on Polygon, which you can read uh, right now, it's a really good reporting by Nicole Carpenter, Um uh, was heartbreaking. Another series of uh, women in the industry feeling totally pushed out, totally out of place, uh, demeaned and belittled and uh, mistrusted with the work needed to do to uh, finish a video game. Um, this is just another kind of toxicity that exists in the workplace. It's still connected very much to uh, the men's club uh, feeling of a lot of studios in the industry. Obviously, we've seen what's happened with Ubisoft and Blizzard, Activision Blizzard, uh, but it's not just big AAA companies. It's also smaller indie folks. Um, a lot of conversations have started this week about how we treat uh, indie auteurs and things like that. Um, but I just want to say, I, I think the the focus on making sure that uh, women in the space have full autonomy to uh, create amazing work is uh, necessary. So stepping back, being removed, all these things are good for men that will not allow that to happen. Uh, for his part, uh, Gaynor did release a statement on his personal Twitter, which I'll read, quote, 
Hi, all. I have a statement to share about my role at Fulbright. Earlier this year, I stepped back from my role as creative lead on Open Roads. My leadership style was hurtful to the people that worked at Fulbright, and for that, I truly apologize. Stepping back has given me space and perspective to see how my role needs to change and how I need to learn and improve as part of the team, including working with an expert management consultant and rethinking my relationship to the work at Fulbright. I deeply, I care deeply about Open Roads and the Fulbright team. I'm sad to have stepped back from day-to-day development of open roads but it's been the right thing to do the open roads team has my full faith and support as they bring the game to completion end quote uh the game was supposed to come out at the end of 2021 the entire team uh through polygon has basically said that they do not anticipate that will be true uh it sounds like it might be a 2022 release but it sounds like it also has a long way to go troubling story uh in a series of troubling stories in this industry over the past few weeks Two names were mentioned specifically in the Activision Blizzard lawsuit as being particular offenders of all the terrible things that have been published in that report and reported afterwards. One was Alex Afrasiabi, a person that has not been in that company for about a year now. The other is J. Allen Brack, the company's president, who was uh, announced earlier this week as leaving the company to, quote, pursue new opportunities. Uh, this is consistent with other departures in the company, including in the HR department. Uh, Brack, uh, Brack's removal or departure, who, however it actually shaked out, uh, is, uh, is going to be interesting because he will be replaced by two people. One is Jen O'Neill, who was with Vicarious visions now at blizzard company uh and it has been overseeing a lot of the overwatch and uh diablo team th- goings on uh the other is mikey barra who used to work uh as a senior executive at xbox and has been in charge of a lot of battle net things for the past while at blizzard so uh those two will uh join together and replace j allen brack it's a really 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 big statement uh really really big move uh comes after the walkout comes after some shakeups. Uh, the uh, employees have also called for the resignation of Francis Townsend, the executive vice president of corporate affairs, who has released some especially tone deaf uh, remarks since the lawsuit was filed. That has not happened yet. Uh, although she has totally nuked her own Twitter account and seemed to have stepped back completely from the public eye. Um, this also coincided uh, with uh, the Activision Blizzard quarterly earnings call, uh, which I listened to. I would listen to the entire thing. It was kicked off by Bob, uh, Bobby Kotick, the CEO over there, uh, making a, uh, a, a fairly sweeping but also wrote and uh, I don't know, not particularly effective statement about changing the company culture, changing the sexist workplace, doing all of the investigations needed to make their employees feel safe, said all the right things, essentially. Um, and that is fine. The rest of the call went as, uh, as follows. A lot of financial reporting, a lot of very vague statements about the lawsuit, a lot of check-ins from different executives and different departments to talk about the reach of King mobile games and how Call of Duty is shaping up and how uh, uh, spending with their consumers is up year over year, quarter over quarter. At the end of the session, there was a Q&A uh, part of the, uh, of the call where uh, a lot of calls were uh, taken from the following. Benchmark Capital, Morgan Stanley, Jeffries Financial, Barclays, and others. Uh, these are all financial big investors who had questions mostly about the health of the video games and also the productivity of their team as they deal with the lawsuit. 
listen, like it's an earnings haul and the best of times earnings hauls are really ghoulish, but this was particularly troubling. Uh, I really can't believe I listened to the entire thing without tipping my desk over. Uh, anyway, uh, there are no signs that Bobby Kotick himself will leave uh, his post, even though all of this happened under his watch. Uh, but uh, there are some shakeups to be made and the Mike Ibarra and Jennifer O'Neill era has officially begun over at Activision Blizzard. Dot Emu is one of the hottest publishers in games right now. The French developer and publisher is behind Streets of Rage 4, as well as Metal Slug Tactics, uh, as well as the upcoming Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge. They were also just purchased by Focus Home Interactive, another French distributor and publisher, for $46 million. Uh, one of the most interesting things that came out of the uh, quote from Dot Emu CEO Surreal Imbert uh, says it will allow the company to launch the production of future remakes and sequels of licensed of first-generation 3D consoles. Now, that's a really interesting idea because Streets of Rage, Metal Slug, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, those are all throwbacks to the 16-bit era, and uh, uh, they are talking very specifically about the early 3D uh, console generation, which is super, super interesting. Uh, it sounds like that the deal will allow .emu to uh, leap further into the AA space. Uh, I say Streets of Rage 4 is still probably a relatively inexpensive game in the space, even though it's very, very good. So AA is going to be uh, an interesting leap that allows them to go 3D, and it'll be super interesting to see what the deal does for both companies. Let's keep it indie for a second. PlayStation had an indie showcase this week highlighting several upcoming games that uh, some were surprises, some we knew about. Let's go down the list. Uh, Oxenfree 2 Lost Signals is uh, coming to Nintendo Switch, as was announced earlier at an indie showcase for that company, but the game is also coming to PlayStation consoles sometime this year. Uh, Axiom Verge 2 is a sequel to one of the last console generation's most interesting indie games. It's a Metroidvania. Yes, we know. Metroidvania is not really the the best uh, <laughs> name for any of these games, but it's basically like a, hey, where do I go kind of game, a gatekeeping game. Uh, and it, the new one looks really, really bonkers. Uh, if the, the first one looked a little straightforward, this one has got some dimension hopping, hacking enemies, a lot of really interesting looking stuff. So if you like the first one, it looks like there's a lot more to like in Axiom Verge 2. Um, that looks pretty interesting. Uh, Witchwood is a game uh, from Alien Trap Games. It's one of those kind of crafty adventure games, maybe a little bit slice of life, uh, if you think of Cozy Grove and some other ones. It looks really cool, uh, but it has some like fairy tales and things like that. I, I like the way this game looks. It's coming out this year. Uh, Soul Cresta. You might remember Platinum Games did a elaborate April Fool's joke, uh, being a sequel to Moon Cresta and Terra Cresta, which is a shoot 'em up. Uh, Soul Cresta is apparently real now. Uh, it will a uh, modernize the shoot 'em up formula with a dock and split system that would require players to combine and disassemble ships to gain access to new abilities. Uh, it's pretty pretty cool looking, and uh, what a, that's that's probably the biggest surprise from the uh, the group we saw today uh, this week. Uh, a Short Hike is a wonderful PC, Mac, and Linux game uh, that a lot of us like a lot. Uh, it came to Switch last year as well, uh, and now it's coming to PS4. You will also be able to play it in 4K on PS4 Pro and PS5. This is a really cool, chill exploration game. A little bit of a Breath of the Wild vibe, but like no combat. No, It's no, no, really low stakes. I really like this game a lot. You should check it out. 
Uh, Carrion is the uh, really cool You're the Monster reverse horror game. It's a little bit like a Metroidvania as well, but you are a monster that is growing and changing and terrorizing a uh, an outpost. Uh, and it's coming to PlayStation uh, uh, later this year. So you should check that out. Uh, and then finally, uh, Hades. We know about Hades. I might mention it here in a bit and what's coming up next week. But uh, Hades is coming soon to PlayStation consoles. Definitely look out for that one. That's that is uh, one of the best games to last, I don't know, 15 years. So please check that out. Finally, Imran Khan wrote a wonderful piece highlighting the details of uh, Nintendo's earnings call and did some really cool math. I invite you to go check out the full article, but I'll just pull out a few things here. Uh, In their 38 years of making hardware, Nintendo has sold 800 million consoles worldwide. That works out to an average of about 21 million hardware units a year uh, since they started manufacturing hardware, which is absolutely bonkers uh some other little details uh, mario golf super rush uh became the second best-selling mario golf title in the series which is a little bit surprising because i don't think that game's very good but if you if you're curious about if those mario sports games do well even if they're not super great that's kind of your answer. Uh, one of the most interesting uh, details here is Metopia, uh, despite being more expensive than the original than the three than its 3DS original with the Switch port, uh, has sold one million units. It's one of the only 3DS titles to achieve a million sales after the Switch had launched. Uh, there are a lot of other really cool details. This is one of my favorite posts that Imran does every quarter. You should go check it out over at. Uh, fanbyte.com. Uh, uh, coming up next is our wonderful interview uh, between Kenneth Shepard and The Last of Us 2 narrative director and uh, co-writer Hallie Gross. Hello, friends. Welcome to the interview portion of this week's Thanks for the Knowledge. I'm Fanbyte staff writer Kenneth Shepard, and with me I have Hallie Gross, the co-writer of Last of Us Part 2. Hi, Hallie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. It's um, not often I get to talk to somebody as involved with a game that means as much to me as The Last of Us Part 2. Um, Aww. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, I'm yeah. excited. Yeah. And like the game is very special to me as somebody who like played, reviewed, and wrote about it. But for you, this is you know your first video game that you ever shipped. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so I kind of wanted to get like a holistic sense of how you feel about the whole thing and you're removed. Um, so oh, let's start man. at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, before this, you were doing work in television and short film. What initially drew you to The Last of Us? Um, so, well, the way it happened was I got a random email out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I had just come off of Westworld and um, I was in the middle of playing Skyrim. And I get this uh, email from my agent being like, hey, have you ever thought about working in games? Neil Druckmann wants to meet you about a super top secret project. It's mm. the last of us part two. Um, mm. Would you be interested? So I, I had known about the last of us. I had played the last of us. Um, but I, but the entree into this world was a total, like by chance, surprising, wonderful piece of luck mm-hmm. for me. That's sort of how I kind of ended up here. Right. So when you first came on, like what exactly, like how far along was the game in terms of the scope of the story? Sure. So Neil had some tentpole moments. He had a beginning. He had his inc- the inc- you know the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the pivot to a different player halfway through. 
Um, and then he had a different ending than the ending we currently have in the game. So he sort of mm. knew that those were the, the big pieces that he wanted to have. Um, but that was kind of it. Uh, so I was coming in to help him build out new characters, connective tissue, make sure mm. that both of the girls had these fully fleshed out arcs. Um, so I came in pretty, pretty early on when I came on, um, Naughty Dog was still entertaining, making it, making, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say this at this point, making <laughs> this an open world game. Right. Um, right. So it was only sort of through our narrative development that it became clear that to get the level of tension and connective tissue that we needed to, it needed to remain a, a more linear game. Right. Right. So was it very daunting for you to come into like a beloved franchise like this? my god yeah it's huge <laughs> it's huge you know people like love it and when i i remember when i was just starting out and i was having drinks or hanging out with uh you know other writer friends i'm like yeah i'm, I'm going to go work at this game studio naughty dog and i'm gonna go start working on a new project and people would be like wait wait is it <laughs> is it are they making a sequel <laughs> to the last of us and i'm like i don't know i couldn't say right who knows <laughs> who could say I've signed a million NDAs. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly say, but um, yeah, so that was really daunting. And, and, you know, I love these characters too. It's like, mm -hmm. you want to, you want to do right by them. You want to do right by the narrative. And also on top of all that, all of the daunting things about coming into a franchise, I had never worked in games before. Right. And uh, as anybody who has like entered into working in games, it's a totally different beast it's a totally mm -hmm. different language so you know i can sit here and say narrative structure is narrative structure you have three or five acts um you know you have your specific turns in certain places but the the mechanics of making games the process of making games is a wildly wildly different thing and i was mm -hmm. really fortunate early on that naughty dog was so willing to uh mentor me in right. that space um like very early on they were putting me in meetings i had like no business or need to be in <laughs> just so that i would like start to understand how right. levels are built how animations are are crafted um how just just how do you do a like a proper igc you know like mm. they were wonderful and i would write down in the back of all of my notebooks words I didn't understand because again, it's like listening to Greek. So I'm like, what's collision? What's a dog right. leg? You know, what is, what's an IGC? Mm. And then at the end of the day, I would go into Neil's office and I would just like make him define them for right. me in the back. <laughs> and I would, I swear it took me, you know, I ended up working on the game for four, four and a half years. And I think the first year or year and a half, I would come home every night, just like my brain was melting out of my ears because mm -hmm. I was so overwhelmed by um, trying to enthusiastically understand a medium that that was, you know, while I had played games my whole life, I had no concept of how uh, involved it was to build right. a video game from scratch. So it, it's been a fabulous, but a very intense learning curve. Right, for sure. So on that note, like, do you remember like any, any specific moments that you maybe felt a friction with what you thought writing was and how it had to be adapted or changed uh, for video games? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, on multiple levels, like when you think about just in-game dialogue, right there, when you think about film and television dialogue, the rule is come in late and leave early. 
You mm. want to come into a conversation just at the point where you're getting all this new information for the viewer to experience, and you're not going to have conversation that isn't relevant to the narrative or character development that is like not intrinsic to mm -hmm. that character development. Like nobody's just going to randomly walk down the street and be like, I like blue. Cool. <laughs> Why do you like blue? You know, whereas when you think about doing in-game dialogue, while you can trigger certain conversations off of certain interacts or certain spaces, it all still has to flow in this very linear way. And people don't, and people just have conversations. They just chat. So you have to sort of get into your playwriting brain in a way. You have to think about how can I make this conversation incite the dialogue about exposition I needed to or mm. inform character in the way I needed to. I can't just um I have to I have to make conversation actually feel more human than right. we have to in film and television, which is interesting. You also have to learn how to say one phrase in like 10 different ways, like right. over there, what's that? You know, you have to like figure mm -hmm. out how to say it's a dead end 20 different ways. Right. Um, you have to, um, what else? You have to think about how do you enter and exit gameplay? There are just all of these little moments that require such technical thoughtfulness um, to make the game feel smooth and to make it feel like you're smoothly transitioning from the cinematic moments to the gameplay moments that, yeah, it just, it's, um, the analogy I often give is, um, writing for film and television is like playing call of duty and writing for games is like going to war. It's just oh, okay. a much, it's right. a much more technical and challenging beast to ride. For sure. But awesome and super worthwhile. And anybody who gets the chance should should try it, for sure. Right. What was there like a moment where you realized that you're right like there was an opportunity for something that you could write or like a scene or dialogue oh. in some way that was different than television, but you had this new opportunity through this new tool set of video games? Oh, that's really interesting. I don't know if there's necessarily the tool set that gave me that feeling. I think mm -hmm. what I observed was because people are so in alignment with the character that they're playing, because you're walking step and step with them, because you're putting them at risk and realizing the stakes of a situation, and you're both just trying to get out by the skin of your teeth, there is this um, this mirroring that really happens between between the player and the character that people felt... I think much more intimate with Ellie or with Joel or with Abby or whomever the playable character is. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a more passionate, um, I think experience right. for people. I think you can get, you have an opportunity to, to incite more empathy right. than in any other medium. And that's really powerful and something I think we should all be using to the best of our advantage to help tell stories about people that are different than ourselves or people right. that um, we might not otherwise relate to. Right. So that people can feel a level of intimacy and alignment with somebody that is outside of their experience. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's interesting that you even talk about like being in alignment with a character. Cause I feel like last of us part two, especially is a game that has almost an antagonistic tension against the yes. player in some points when you are playing, sure. like you're playing as the character that killed Joel. You're, and you know, you're doing it just before the moment when it happens and then you're doing it after. Um, were you 
looking to have like that, like again, like that antagonistic relationship with the player for at least part of the game. Is that something you thought out to do? I mean, I think we accepted that there was going to be dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know anybody who jumped into the Abby sequence and was like, are we allowed to curse on this? I don't know. I'm trying to be late. <laughs> Hold on. I'll be, I'll be, okay. who are like, fuck yeah, I'm ready to play as Abby. Like nobody <laughs> was like thrilled by that turn. Mm-hmm. Right. Everybody was like, well, how long am I going to have to do this? And I don't right. want to play as this girl. She's a bitch. She killed my favorite character, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so we knew that there are these moments of dissonance and often people also mention dissonance at the end of the game where you're fighting and maybe you're on team Ellie or maybe you're on team Abby, mm-hmm. but either way, the situation is kind of beyond your control and it just feels, um, you're, you're, you're witnessing this level of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, for both situations, I think that it was valuable dissonance, right? Because right. so much of the game is about walking in the footsteps of the other and learning to at least sympathize with Mm -hmm. somebody who is outside of your own experience. And so if you didn't have that feeling coming into the Abbey section, we had nowhere to take you. Right. Right. The whole point was that you're coming in with this presumption about who this person is and discovering that she has as much, if not more humanity than the person that you loved. So then, and then with the, with the, you know, last fight scene where people were also mentioning a lot of dissonance, I think that dissonance is also important because you feel out of control in the same way that Ellie feels out of control, right? Like Ellie Mm. has tried to stop herself on this journey multiple times and can't bring herself to stop hurting Abby. And so Mm. I think that dissonance is important because as much as you might not want to witness your character do this thing, the truth of who she is means she can't stop Mm. pressing triangle either, right? Like she can't stop um going down this road even if she disagrees with what she's doing. So I think in right. both of those places it as long as it's a a um active choice and you're embracing that dissonance I think it can be really useful. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think you want to sort of avoid the the parts where it's just um there isn't an emotional justification for it. Right. And I think that that's something that I've always found interesting about Last of Us as a, as a series is that there is that sense of like trying to take the player out of the protagonist choose in a way like put them in but also like take them out and be like no you need to understand this is not about you in the mo- most uh, concrete way that a lot of video games are and if it always sure. felt, like diametrically opposed in a way that was interesting and it's i think as in my like in my experiences what i've seen uh of people talk about these games kind of speaks to like the way that um these games can be divisive but i think that division can speak to its strengths as well i think that's that's 100 fair right like you are playing as Ellie or as Abby or as Joel with all of their character constraints, right? And I don't just mean in terms of like their weapon set. I mean your their literal emotional constraints. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and that that is gonna have its its dissonance, right? Like characters that we I'm not gonna agree with all the choices Walter White has made. That doesn't mean <laughs> that I'm not going to be fascinated by the journey that he goes on, right? But because it's gameplay, I think we're mo- more palpably aware of the the differences and ultimately the similarities between our protagonists, our players and ourselves. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so beyond the actual like nuts and bolts of like writing and development of the game, uh, mm-hmm. how has it been uh, switching over to a completely different industry? How has the games industry differed in your experience than when you worked in television? Well, so I love Naughty Dog to pieces. I think, you know, 
I can't speak to other studios because I haven't worked at other mm-hmm. studios. I've only ever like had beers with other studios and they've right. all seemed lovely. But, um, you know, what I really found fascinating in Hollywood, I have been, and as many writers are, you're a hired gun. You come in for 10 weeks, 20 weeks, mm-hmm. a year at a stretch. You know, your relationships are short term. Right. You know, your project is short term. Whereas in the games industry, or at least speaking for Naughty Dog, like people are there because they want to be there. They're there not mm. based on the project. They're there based on the company and the company's reputation and the quality of material that the company puts out. Um, they want to be part of what Naughty Dog is doing. And so there is this um, commitment mm. uh, of relationships where, you know, there is this, um, how do I explain it? There's this collaboration Mm-hmm. that exists that I think is really special. And one of the things that I found really wonderful about games and that I I miss when I'm in Hollywood is this this collaboration not just mm-hmm. with other writers but with other departments, right? Like right. very early on in the process, I was sitting down with designers, artists, animators trying to figure out trying to use the, like the best of everybody's brains and the strengths that everybody has to build out the best version of this game, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was such a wonderful learning experience for me because I'm not necessarily, I'm going to think about the character one way, but the character concept team thinks about, okay, well, let's, they're going to bring up questions and ideas I would never had. There's something really that feels familial in like that Mm long-term long-haul commitment. Um, that I really appreciated. Um, yeah, that it just, it felt like we were in this together. We were right. making this thing together. It was very heartening. And also I think, you know, Naughty Dog is also an incredibly special place in terms of who the people are that are there, right? There are just so many mm-hmm. wonderful men and women making great art um, right. that it's just, it's a, a joy to be around. Mm-hmm. So you talk about this like long tail of a project, which is like you said, demonstrably different than what you did in television. And anecdotally, I was actually at the PlayStation Experience where part two was unveiled. And I remember opening up my phone on the show floor. And one of the theories was already sprouting up on social media. The day of was that Joel was a ghost in that trailer and Ellie Uh, was going uh after to find his killers. And I completely forgot about it for literal years um, until I was playing the game for review a year ago and I was sitting in my room and then it all suddenly came rushing back to me. What is it like sitting on something like that for years, for like four years at that point? Oh my gosh. You know, it's on the one hand, it's like torture because everybody's asking you, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'll go, I would go have drinks with writer friends and they'd be like, but wait, are you guys going to kill Joel though? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. I can't talk. Go away. Like I can't, let's talk about something else. Uh, That's crazy. Um, But at the same time, like, you know, because you're so in it with, however many people are in your studio, 300 people in your studio, like you learn, like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're keeping a secret, right. you know, because we're all talking about it so openly. So then it just becomes like the desire for, I think the studio for me personally, but also for the studio is how do you give the player, the person purchasing the game, mm-hmm. the best experience that they can have. Like when that game boots up for the first time, how can they have the most special experience? And so I think we saw a lot of the marketing and a lot of what we were putting out as like a way to to 
make that those first few hours of the game feel incredibly special. So it felt okay to keep the secret because you're like, you're like, yeah, but I'm, you know, but I want you to be shocked. I want you to be surprised. I want you to go on the same ride that Ellie's about to go on. And if you know too much, you're going to be ahead. You're going to, you're not going to be in step with her in the same way. Um, so that's, so ultimately it's, it's fine. Um, but there are moments when you're like hanging out with friends where you're like, Oh man, I wish I could talk to you about this thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so like on, on that note though, you'd been sitting on that for years. You, you'd been, like, it was a, not a secret when we were actually working, but just outside of that, you had to kind of like keep a lid on it. How did you personally feel when those leaks started coming out and those scenes were spreading early? Oh my God. It was, I mean, it was devastating, right? Mm. Like we had all just started work from home during COVID. And like, I don't remember how I found out about it. I think someone texted me, Neil or Kurt or somebody, but um, yeah, it it was awful because it's also like, you're getting these scenes out of context. Mm -hmm. They're old, right? So they're not even at the quality that they should be. Um, And suddenly people are making like huge presumptions about Mm -hmm. this 30 hour experience. Like they think they know exactly what it's going to be. It was, and all the hard work that like everybody had put in and now people are just tearing it apart. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was really frustrated for, I, I was really frustrated, but I was more just sick for mm-hmm. all the, all the people who had worked on this stuff. Like suddenly now we all felt so judged and vulnerable when, when our work had been taken so out of context, it was really, it was, and then more kept coming out and more and more. And you're sitting there, like I'm sitting in my apartment, just like you're going through the Rolodex in your head of every scene. Like what's the worst stuff that could come out. And then that's the stuff that does start to come out. And you're like, well, um, this is going to (laughs) blow. It's just going to blow, you know, but, um, what can you do? You sort of take it in stride and hope that ultimately when played as a whole, the game will speak for itself. Um, and right. I think for the people who were willing to give it that opportunity, I think for most people it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely felt like we were fighting an uphill battle for a while to just right. get people to have an open mind. Right. And so I, that even felt like what was the beginning of like a kind of narrative that would maybe stick around in certain spaces of the internet. Um, you, know, you, find, <laughs> you find extreme reactions such as like petitions to have the game remade as well as review bombing. And you've, yeah. you said this was like not a fun experience, but like, how do you, when you're releasing something on this scale, like where millions of people are going to play this game, how do you personally parse whether something is like valuable criticism that's coming from a good place and what might be bad faith? You know, on the one hand, I think it's always important to listen and have an open mm-hmm. mind. On the other hand, without context, it felt it felt like I didn't, I don't know, maybe I'm going to say something inappropriate, but I just felt like I didn't want to hear from somebody who hadn't had the full experience. Mm. So like, it's one thing for somebody to, having played the game, reviewed it and said, I see what they were trying to do. It didn't work for me. Right. Super valid opinion. Mm-hmm. But somebody who's just like, going into my DMs and calling me a feminazi because, Mm. which I'm still getting, by the way, I'm still getting like, fuck you for killing Joel in my DMs a year later. It's, there's a real intense, small contingent out there. But, um, then, then at that point, I'm just like, well, the whole, (laughs) the irony is this game is about don't judge people without context, right? Mm. Like we don't, the entire theme of this game is like, 
making presumptions without knowing the full facts right. and like judging people based on on not enough information. And here you guys are literally like living the sin of the game. You're literally like <laughs> making these judgments without understanding. So it just like, I don't know, the irony was real. The irony right. was a real, real strong in that moment. Right. But you know what? Thank God for liquor. We, we made it through. <laughs> we, we made it through. We, we use whatever tools we have at our disposal. Oh man. It was like COVID. We were all locked down. Mm-hmm. It was a dark time. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, launch is approaching there's a pandemic what is it like to put something out that you've been working on for this many years when the world has kind of stopped oh man you know i i remember you know it was freaky because it's like we're literally making a game about a right. post pandemic in a in an actual goddamn pandemic mm-hmm. like like what are the odds like and so you know you you see the date coming down the line and you're like Either this is going to be really resonant mm-hmm. or ain't nobody going to have bandwidth for this shit right now, right. you know, right. and you, do, you don't know. And I think, you know, like I have 300 hours on Animal Crossing from that period of time because I was mm-hmm. like, I need escapism. <laughs> I need to go and just worry about turnip prices. But right. <laughs> um, so there is this like panic of, well, people are home more. So are they going to want to play more games with this game's a, right. this game's a downer? Like, is this what people are going to want to feel? And so there's just fear, you know, there's fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, you know, fortunately we got a lot of positive feedback about like, Hey, this actually helped me mm-hmm. process this and it made me feel capable and, and it felt especially resonant and that's great. But I'm sure for some people that's not true. I'm sure for some people they're like, right. you know what? I've got enough pandemic outside. Thank you very much. Which is <laughs> yeah. valid. Right. Yeah. I am um, per- personally, I, just like being totally transparent with you, like I was playing the game for review, and in that process, my own father actually passed away. And oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. And so, like, while any game, I think would have been like etched into that moment of my life, it was like playing a game that was about the death of a father and grief, and oh. kind of how we move on in our own time was kind of serendipitous, I guess. Um, so I, I, you know, I get why people not necessarily want to play it at that point, but I feel like it could not have been more impactful at that, like at any other point in my life. Um, oh. Yeah. I'm glad. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm not, I'm heartbroken <laughs> that you went through that, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it could be resonant for you at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, again, like it was the entire trajectory of my grieving process was basically altered by this game in a way that was positive, I think. Um, oh, good. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And speaking of like positive things that came out of this game, um, Last of Us Part 2 is a very diverse game, and the, the inclu- inclusivity of it means a lot to a lot of people here, even here at Fanbyte, like that are queer, that are women, that are people of color um a year removed from the game regarding that what's new about to you something that you're really proud of that you really felt like you executed well and what is something that maybe upon reflection you feel you might have been able to do better with some reflection oh that's interesting um things that i think we did well look i think anytime any piece of narrative whether it's a game a film a tv show a book um can make people feel empathy for somebody that's different than themselves we're winning, right? Anytime mm-hmm. that we can push the ball forward in terms of um, allowing people to see somebody who's different than them and find a shared connection, I think we're winning. And so on that, in that way, I think The Last of Us 2 did an excellent job. I think, you know, we were incredibly mm-hmm. diverse. Naughty Dog itself is quite diverse. And so it was always very important. It continues to be a very important part of um, the culture and 
So that's wonderful. I got, you know, very sweet notes in my DMs from people who said this helped them um, be accepted more by their family or mm-hmm. helped them feel seen. And that's wonderful. In terms of what we can do better, I think we can always do better, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. we can always, both as a studio, as an artist, as a country, as a world, we can continue to um, think about how do we how do we face tropes head on? How do we make sure that when we're telling stories, not uh, one character doesn't have to represent an entire group or demographic? Right. How do we make sure that we're painting people fairly? How do we make sure that we're listening? And I think, you know, you can always talk to more people, right? We could always mm. um, find more consultants, talk to people who have varied experiences. Um, we can always read more books. We can always, you know, we can always work to educate ourselves more and more and more and more and speak to people who have had those experiences and understand the diversity of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really proud of what we did with this game and how I think we did actively push the ball forward in terms of of character development and diverse character development in media. I think right. I think we crushed it. I think we can always do better, but I also think like we we took a big Naughty Dog was was very happy and brave and thrilled to take that big jump. Mm. And I'm proud to I'm proud to have gotten to be a part of that. Yeah. Speaking on that, like I I'm I'm a gay man who lived who has lived in a small southern town his entire life. So Jackson feels familiar to me in ways that are good. And also there there seems like Seth being a bigot to yeah. Ellie and Dina. Conversations where Joel, like, thought Ellie had a crush on Jesse just because they were <laughs> friends and proximity of each other. Uh-huh. Or even, like, her journal entries of, like, dealing with the uncertainty and anxieties of, like, her own relationships, whether or not to tell Joel. Um, and a lot of that I felt was, like, very punctuated by the queer bookstore in Seattle uh, that Ellie and Dina can go to, and they don't know what pride flags are and, like, what they yes. don't really understand the space that they're in, um, which was, to me, like, one of the more, like, tragic, out-of-time conversations where they talk about, like, the world before and things that they never experienced. Um, and I've had some conversations with some folks about this a lot, like what part of culture survives the apocalypse versus the yeah. people? Like, you know, that is obviously like people like a, a casualty list when they talk about the, the apocalypse. But um, it was just fascinating to me to see kind of like a, what, but again, like basically equated to like a small American town. Can you talk a little bit about what the team's headspace was regarding what it, basically what it means to be queer in the apocalypse? Oh, wow. I mean, I don't know if I feel like, I can speak to mm-hmm. the breadth of that experience, right? Like, I think the whole right. point is that we're looking at Ellie, Ellie and Dina's experience specifically. Um, so to be queer in the apocalypse, I think is to be queer now. Like it's, yeah. it, I'm sure there's a diversity of experience between being queer in Jackson versus being queer in the Boston QZ versus being queer in, right. you know, with the Seraphites. It's, um, I think that's one of the important parts of the game is to say that like, there is no one queer experience. Um, But I do think because we were facing those issues head on, it was an interesting thought exercise to go, okay, well, what is Ellie's experience with queer culture, Mm -hmm. right? Would she know what that flag is? Would she have read, you know, queer novels? What is her understanding? Or is it just normal? Is it zeitgeist? Is it, what is that, um, 
what has she faced? So anytime we had an opportunity to articulate both her, because you've lost her for four years, we haven't seen her for mm-hmm. four years. It's important to sort of know where she's coming from, right? Like what is her sense of ignorance? Has she been with other girls before? Is this all new for her? How does she view it in terms of her own identity? But um, I think her queerness is is a, a one facet of, of this incredibly complex mm-hmm. woman. So while I think it's important to, to make space for that and to articulate that it was also, it's not the sole identifier of who mm-hmm. she is, right? Like we also wanted to give opportunities to talk about Ellie as a, as a comic book fan, as a daughter right. with regrets, as a, a girlfriend with doubts. Um, so yeah, I mean, so to the long and the short is to say like, I think we just wanted to make sure that it felt like there was a diversity of experience mm-hmm. so that it didn't feel like we were saying there is one queer right. experience in this world because there isn't now. Right. And hopefully there never will be right. Like hopefully right. ultimately people will allow, be allowed to be exactly who they are. Yeah. And that, that is something that, that was definitely one of my takeaways with this game as well is that like, I, I just told you all the reasons that Ellie's experience really resonates with me, but I also recognize that somebody has probably had a very different lived experience where maybe like some of the things like Seth being the way he was might've like not worked for somebody where I see see something that like very much I've experienced similar moments in my own life. And it kind of goes back to what what we're talking about. It's like the game is about perspective in a way that uh, really illustrates that everyone's kind of coming from things and from different ways. And that can always, some of those can cause friction with each other. You you know, look, I would love to say that, the the premise of The Last of Us is to create a grounded future world, right? Like, mm. and it's not about an idealized world. It's sort of about like when humanity is abandoned of structure, what are we left with? And to say that there aren't going to be homophobes or bigots, that kids aren't going to have to necessarily negotiate those things because it's in the future, because we're creating a video game, I think mm. isn't a. It's not the world we live in. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we're not just going to get rid of all the bigots in the world, you know, just because our electricity goes down. Mm -hmm. Bigots going to bigot. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's a question of. um, But also showing degrees of that. Right. Like Ellie is blindly accepted by her family. She does Mm -hmm. have to deal with hiccups in Jackson, which are tragic. But then you have sweet love who who is really having to negotiate that because mm-hmm. you're also not going to get rid of a religious extremism in the future. Right. right. Realistically, that's, those are facets of parts of parts of our way of being and have been for mm-hmm. a long time. And I think it's also important again to, to show the diversity of that experience and how people negotiate it differently. Right. So we are about running out of time here, but we're a full year removed from launch. What do you feel like you've learned? Oh my gosh. I've learned, I've learned, I don't know if I've, I mean, I've learned a ton. I've learned what a dog leg is and collision. So that's great. <laughs> but I think more than anything, I've, I've more doubled down on my conviction that diverse stories need to be told and mm-hmm. people, but when we write diverse stories, it can't just be stories about diversity, right? It has right. to be this concept of, Something that's relevant to me right now is, you know, we're seeing a big push for uh, women in action movies, which is wonderful. Mm. And I'm glad that we're having that diversity now. But can we do women in action without it being about the fact that they're women? Mm. Can we can we make stories where 
can we can we use narrative to further push all of us feeling more willing to embrace diversity? Mm-hmm. And so I think what I've learned is more like uh, I'm standing in that tribe, no matter what's in my DMs. <laughs> you know, my my DMs <laughs> will not scare me away from continuing to try and tell those stories. Um, and in terms of, I guess I've also learned uh, how much collaboration is important. And if you're willing to mm-hmm. listen to the people you work with and you work with people that you have faith in, you can create something incredibly amazing. I think the game that we made as a collective is the game we all set out to make is probably mm-hmm. better than the game that we all individually conceived of because, and it became stronger because of the diversity of minds and brains and thinking in the studio. Um, so I also have learned to really extra double appreciate people who think differently than I do. Um, and also just a love of game development. I think Mm -hmm. people who work in games, you know, can't speak as a whole, but the people I've met working in games are wonderful and creative and hardworking and passionate about interactive experiences. And, and that's just fucking awesome. (laughs) (laughs) They're just great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hallie, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you so much. I've had a blast. I hope I was vaguely cogent. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you were excellent. Thank you so much. Hey, folks, I'm back and I'm here with uh, Kenneth Shepard. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that interview, Kenneth. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad that it turned out as well. It did. Yeah, um, I got some really interesting stuff out of uh, Hallie Gross, and I, I wanted to ask you a couple of reflection questions because mm. it, it spurred some stuff in my mind um I, i'm not someone that followed the last of us uh, uh super super closely from a mm. development standpoint so it was news to me out of the gate uh that it was at one point conceived to be an open world game yeah. and uh the narrative kind of pushed it maybe toward a little bit of linearity can you imagine mm. that story set in an open world setting uh in theory i think it would have it would have worked but i think I just prefer the level design that they were able to implement the more like crafted linear stuff that they did and more like the open linear stuff of more recent Naughty Dog stuff. But cause, like, that game does have what are ostensibly open world sections and but it's not like the core of that game. And I think I just prefer it generally that that way. Um, but it does have a lot of like, you know, your characters are moving throughout the city of Seattle. So like it could have worked, I think. But I just yeah, like even after hearing that, just the more I thought about it, I was like. I'm glad the way they went the way they did because I, <laughs> I also just don't really care for open world bullshit to begin with. Yeah, so. yeah that's fair. Um, in, in that same vein, uh, how he talked about uh, character constraints, kind of developing uh, a sense of closeness with an actual character instead of kind of like you being a player. Like you also mentioned that uh, in, in the, in, in the interview, one of the things that came to mind was mass effect another mm. series that you are very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that game and that series has gotten a second look from new players, especially with the remasters. And although there are still folks that are you know clamoring about the constraints of that narrative, which was full of choice, but also a lot of not choices as it turned out. Um, do you think the last of us two will get a similar look in this vein? Uh, it's hard to say because like we are still not Close. that distant from it, and right. I feel like even now, like as I was um doing my the other podcast show that I do normally, and we were doing a retrospective on the show. It's it was very apparent to me just how 
still like closely tied to the discourses of that game that game still is and like mm. it's not able to escape a lot of stuff that like marketing set out for it like what, what i would argue is like poor or just mm, ill-informed marketing has kind of like entrenched itself in the way that we talk about that game and i think it's going to take a lot of time for that kind of stuff to go away and which i think is a shame just because i think you know i think it's fair to uh approach a game on the narratives that marketing makes but i also think that when those are as intentionally deceptive as that game was uh it kind of muddies the way we talk about it in ways that the game itself maybe doesn't actually engage with but somebody you know on on you know the uh the marketing campaign kind of sets something up and that is what we have to kind of like work with and the ways in which we talk about are framed around that yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, y'all ended on a really interesting discussion. You asked what she had learned, and, and she kind of talked about mm-hmm. uh, diverse storytelling uh, and how she really wants to be part of a a group of writers that is making stories really about those characters and less, I would say, this is the, these are my words, less about the triumph of the diversity itself. How did you feel about her answer on that question? Uh, I think it's, a, it's an interesting thing to have, like, a game that is just naturally diverse and is not necessarily mm, how was the phrase it's like about diversity as like right. sort of a, a check mark or like a or just like a bullet point on something that you can point to and i think it with the last of us specifically i think it was able to naturally weave in a lot of uh a lot of diversity in a way that was made sense in its world and like had to reckon with like what it meant to be I, I, I guess a game about a zombie apocalypse, but also like reckoning with what <laughs> diversity means and what it, especially what it means in a setting where the world has basically stopped being what it was. And I think that is something that, as a person that like you know cares about diversity and like how identities are woven into worlds that are not necessarily identical to our own. Um, mm-hmm. I I admire that uh, that aspiration, and I did. Well, I understand some things that uh, The Last of Us did might not resonate with some people the way that some of them resonated with me. Uh, I do really appreciate sort of her outlook on the ways in which that, like, diversity can be... It's, it's something to aspire to in the ways in which it is not as universal as um, some people might argue in, like, criticism, like, that there is, like, sort, sort of, like, this one experience that we should aspire to where less right. of us and, you know... I, th- I think good writers generally, like, are aware that... Um, there isn't one sort of experience that everyone should aspire to, and that their diversity in itself does mean also like diversity of identity, but also diversity of experience. And I think that is something the last was worked for me. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, she she really seems to value the diversity of human experience more mm-hmm. than almost anything else, which I think yeah. was an interesting perspective to bring to that game, and and probably what it needed, honestly, mm-hmm. to like yeah get it over that hump. So yeah, for sure, and like because like yeah. again like. I, when I was replaying this game, or I, when I played the first game and then played the second, I was like, there seemed to be an understanding that, like, the first game was maybe, like, the pinnacle of, like, the dad game. And, like, it was very much, like, of a very specific <laughs> uh, yeah. experience and perspective. And I think, honestly, for, for even for me, like, The Last of Us, I think, needed to reckon with that in a very um, tangible way, which I think it did, uh, in sort of, like, being, like, a very hard break from that. And, like, making that, like getting away from that narrative, like almost like a core theme of what that game was. And I hope that it honestly, like I, I, I will, I really hope that that is something that whatever is coming next, like really takes to heart and is able to like appreciate that that heartbreak was made and that this game can be more diverse than it, it was initially. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Um, I, I that's that was such a good interview. I, I really didn't know much about Halle Gross, and I didn't know, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of details about kind of the run up of that game, especially from a narrative perspective. So that was a, mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Um, I, in in doing my research, one last thing. Uh, did you know that Halle Gross was in several episodes of Law and Order as a child? I did not know that specifically. I knew that like I was looking at like her. Uh, yeah, I was looking at like her IMDb, and I was like, "Oh, wow, she did actually a lot of like acting before she got into writing." I was like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah." Even even some things that I would never have known. <laughs> All right, Ken. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm going to uh, get y'all ready for next week. Now we got to look at the week ahead. And Paul, can you put the uh, Law and Order dun dun in here? Thanks. <laughs> we got some game releases coming up this next week. We have a streaming recommendation I can hardly give you. Let's get to the games first, though. Uh, on August 10th, uh, we have Black Book, which is an RPG coming to PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. It's a, it's a dark adventure. Explore some little demon stuff. Uh, it sounds dark, but it's it's rated everyone 10+, so it must not be that dark. Anyway, uh, also on August 10th, 2021, is Godfall. And yeah, I know what you're saying. That game's already out. Yeah, you're right. But it's uh, it's out for PlayStation 4. It was a PlayStation 5 launch title along with PC uh, back in November. And uh, the developer Counterplay Games decided to put it on PlayStation 4, probably to expand its audience. It was a... Uh, mixed bag. Uh, our own Khalif Adams really liked it. Our own Merit K thought this was one of the worst games she's ever played. So uh, you can check it out for yourself if you only have a PlayStation 4 this coming week. Uh, Lawn Mowing Simulator, which I'm extremely excited about, comes to Xbox Series X and S and PC. Uh, Skyhook Games is uh, Skyhook Games is game. It's probably not the best way to say that. I'd love to take this one again, but you know what? This take has been pretty good. So I'm going to stick with it. It's like missing a patch of grass. You know, you can always go back, but maybe you just leave the patch. Maybe something cool grows there. Anyway, lawn mowing simulator looks cool. Uh, it's coming out this week. I can't wait to play it. Uh, on August 11th, we have a game called Glitch Punk. Uh, not much is known about this one, but Datalik is publishing it. It's coming to PC. It looks uh, cyberpunky. Hey, can you believe it? Uh, Icarus is a adventure game coming to PC. It's multiplayer. Uh, it comes out on August 11th. It's a, uh, it's a survival game. It's one of those adventure survival games. So if you like rust and things like that, this is kind of one of those, uh, looks pretty interesting. Uh, seed of life is a puzzle game coming to PC, uh, on August 11th. Uh, don't know much about this one, but Hey, if you like puzzle games and publisher Leonardo interactive, which I've also never heard of, but Godspeed, I just can't wait to play Leonardo uh, interactive games for the rest of my life. Uh, That's out on August 11th. Um, Art of Rally looks like a cool little rally racing game. It's been out for uh, uh, PC for quite a while um, since uh, late last year, but it's coming to Xbox Series X and S, Xbox One, and Switch on August 12th, and later this year on PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4. uh, The the publisher and developer is Fun Selector. It's a cool little racing game. Uh, I, I, I will probably check it out. And you know what? I bet Paul will check it out as well vroom vroom 
Uh, Foreclosed is an action game. Looks pretty slick for PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X, and S, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, PC, and Google Stadia. Uh, it, it, uh, looks like a neat game. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it looks mature, gritty, cyberpunky. Uh, it's coming out on August 12th. Naraka Blade Point is an Eastern influenced multiplayer game that actually got its debut at the Game Awards all the way back in 2019. That is coming out on August 12th for PC, uh, and it will get eventually a release on PlayStation 5, but that is still to be decided. Uh, and finally, rounding out this week's big releases is a huge one. The uh, definitive game of 2020, Fanbyte's 2020 game of the year, Hades, is finally making its way to other consoles besides Switch and PC. It is coming out on August 13th for PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X and S, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. It is one of the best games of the generation, one of the best games of the decade, one of the best games of all time. If you've missed it, if you don't have a PC, if you don't have a Switch, now is the time to check this game out. It is one of our very favorites. Favorites, Please check out our coverage of this game, uh, especially our Game of the Year coverage from 2020 uh, over at podcastnet.work and over at fanbyte.com if you want to get a sense of what this game is about. It is awesome. Um, no big streaming releases are coming out this week, but I do want to make mention of uh, a movie I mentioned last week, uh, The Suicide Squad on HBO Max. Uh, that is going to be on the surface until September 5th. And I have to say, uh, the hype is real. Uh, it is a very good movie. <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, I saw the original Suicide Squad, the not James Gunn version, in movie th- in a movie theater at Cinerama at the Arclight in uh, Los Angeles. And it was one of the worst films I've ever seen. Terrible experience. Um, actually, it was a great experience. It was really fun. But bad movie. The Suicide Squad, the second one, not really super canonical to the first one. You don't need to have seen it. You really don't need to have seen any of the other movies in the DC uh, extended universe canon. So don't worry about that stuff. It's actually really good uh, for all the beef I sometimes have with James Gunn and the overuse of some of those tropes like record uh, needle drops and kind of goofy writing. Uh, this movie is actually pretty great. Uh, so I really highly recommend it. Go check it out. HBO Max until September 5th. All right. Well, that's what's coming next week, folks. That's going to do it for this week's episode. I want to thank Kenneth Shepard for his wonderful interview. I want to thank Hallie Gross for lending her expertise and time to the show. Thank you so much, Hallie. If you want to follow Kenneth Shepard on Twitter, you can do so over at ShepardCDR. You can also find Kenneth's writing every single day on fanbyte.com. Uh, thank you to Paul Tamayo for his wonderful production work. Thank you so much, Paul. If you want to follow Paul, you can do so over at Pauly Mayo. And please listen to The Optional. That's Paul's podcast. It's very, very good. It's here on the Fan by Podcast Network. Uh, until next week, folks, you're welcome.